Welcome to the fifth episode of the Jim and Justin Breakdown. I'm here with my co-host, Jim Duquette. How are you doing, Jim? I'm uh, doing well, Justin. As always, uh, glad to be here. Looking forward to uh, this week's uh, podcast. Me too. Me too. I've been watching a lot of sports lately. It's a great time of the year. Almost every sport is about to be going at once. Yeah, it, well, it's right. And, and, you know, each kind of season has its own, uh, you know, points in time where you're like, man, you get really excited about it. Everyone gets excited about the start of the NFL. But, of course, my passion on the baseball side, we're getting ready for postseason, baby. I can't oh, yeah. wait. Oh, yeah. Can't wait for that. October's the best. Always, always the best. To me, the most fun time of the year, right? Right now, this last stretch of September, as you as you lead to October and all the different possibilities with with teams, both mostly in the the wild cards. But believe it or not, American League and National League wild card are 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 pretty tight races. The National League wild card's gotten tight all of a sudden with uh, Colorado in the second wild card and St. Louis and Milwaukee right behind it. Yeah, I love the expansion of having two wild card teams in the play-in game. Uh, obviously, that's a pretty new thing. What do you think of that change? I'm I'm a big fan of the second wild card just because we've seen so many teams uh, that you ordinarily wouldn't be involved. There's a little bit more parity. Some would say mediocrity. I, I view it as more parity in the you know with with the teams. The teams are willing to kind of press the envelope a little bit at the trade deadline and make deals that ordinarily they wouldn't if they were, right. you know, eight games out of the of the division race. They're not making a deal. They're either holding pat or they're going to sell a player or two. But when you're, you know, two games, three games, four games, that 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 small amount or less away from out of the postseason, even if it's a second wild card, even though it's only a one game playing, there are plenty of teams that are willing willing to do that. It's funny, you get you get pushback sometimes with this second wild card. But the vast majority of people that I talk to, and, and and even my own observations from the from the past, like I loved the wild card when it first came in, you know, right in nine, uh, 1996. I think adding the second wild card just the past few years has increased the 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 level of interest in more cities. So I'm I'm more for that. It's there's still the least amount of postseason teams. Uh, in baseball than any other sport. Right, exactly. And you touched on teams being more willing to start buying at the deadline. I think it's good for the game to have more teams buying because that creates more buyers for the teams that really need to be selling. Uh, and I think it helps even out the playing field in the long run. I think the bad teams have more teams they can sell to. Uh, and then there's just more teams that are competitively making a push at the end, like you talked about. Uh, so I think overall it's really good for the game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, I'll tell you the other thing, part of the the trade deadline has changed over the years too, because, you know, you mentioned there's more teams being involved, but it's also, you know, those those players that you're willing to, you know, potentially trade, say you're in a seller's mode, you have a player that, that you're not, you're trying to decide, do I hold them and take the draft pick or not? Well, you you can't do that anymore with the CBA. The CBA has changed enough where, you know, unless you're a, a small market uh, club, you're not getting a, a real high pick. You're certainly not getting the other team's first round pick. Right. Um, right. You know, you're getting a more of a late round first round pick, which which changes the equation. The value is different in that in that in that uh, spot as well. So there's a whole host of things that that really the last two collective bargaining agreements have really really changed things from a front office perspective in my mind. Uh, you know, on uh, both both in the front office but also on the field a little bit. Yeah, you know, a lot of things are changing. And speaking of how the game has changed, uh, we have a really exciting guest that we're about to bring on to the show. We have NBA legend Rick Barry. I know he's got some things to say about how the game has changed. I know he thinks that today's players have it too easy. 
I'm really excited to bring Rick on. How about you? Rick's one of my all-time favorites. I used to I used to imitate, emulate. I played college basketball. He was one of my all-time favorites, my, one of my idols when I was growing up uh, playing basketball, whether it was uh, rec basketball, competitive basketball, playing through you know, my youth, and, and even even playing Nerf basketball, which back in the day was the thing. Uh, he was he was one of the guys that I tried to emulate his his shot his free throws, so I'm really I'm really excited to talk to him. Yeah, I think my generation he's one of the guys that we all know because the underhand free throw is just so famous, and especially among the stats community, we love Rick Barry. I mean, everyone that really dives into analytics knows that the best way to shoot a free throw is underhanded, and and so there's no doubt that he has. He really should have changed the game, and it's unfortunate that he didn't. Uh, but we can talk to him more about that. I'll go ahead and add him to our call. And we have NBA legend on the line, Rick Barry. Rick, how are you? I'm doing great. I tell everybody if I was doing any better, I'd be making a comeback in the NBA. <laughs> I wish you were doing a little bit better then. That would be fun to see. <laughs> I pay for the average salary, too. <laughs> <laughs> that's that, yeah. Well, I, you know, it's, that's a that's lot a good... more than I ever made. <laughs> that's a good starting point. It's a good starting point when you look at no, not just the salary, but the way things have changed from when you played to what you see now. What what, what is your overall view, Rick, of the of the of the brand of uh, basketball that you watch these days? Well, I thank God for the San Antonio Spurs and the, and the uh, Golden State Warriors and a few other teams that are understanding and realizing that you know it's not just a game of one on one; it's a game of basketball, and you play as a team. And unfortunately, uh, it doesn't seem like doesn't seem like a lot of teams in the past were doing that, and it was kind of boring to watch, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. And not the kind of basketball that I like, but I, I love watching the Spurs play. I love watching the Warriors play, and that's the way I was taught how to play the game. And I think people are coming to the realization, uh, coaches and organizations, that if you want to win, that's the way you have to play. And I think that's the one redeeming quality of the NBA is that no team has won a championship that didn't play the game the correct way. They have an emphasis on defense. They're one of the better defensive teams in the league and they actually run plays and play unselfishly and play basketball the way I think it should be played. And Rick, those are the teams that have the chance of winning. Rick, to go to the contrary of that, do you think that a team led by Russell Westbrook, could win a championship or is he the kind of player that just can't win? Uh, well, they, they had their chance a couple of seasons ago. Unfortunately, the one thing that his, his Achilles heel is that he has a tendency to try to force things and not let the game come to him. I think if the right people were around him and if he were willing to adjust his game accordingly, that just you know certainly he could win. He's an incredibly talented individual. There's no question about it. What he did was remarkable. Uh, still not in the same league as to what Oscar Robertson did. There's huge differences between those two. Um, and that he was trying to get triple doubles and Oscar wasn't. And the last right. time I checked, he didn't have to play nine times against Bill Russell, nine times against Will Chamberlain, nine times against Nate Thurman, nine times against Walt Bellamy. <laughs> he didn't have hardly any centers that he had to be worried about to go in and get all those dunks and easy baskets he scored going to the hole. But uh, take nothing away from what his accomplishment was. It was remarkable. But uh, to, you know, to say that he can't win, uh, I wouldn't go so far as to say that. Yeah. Is Rick, it- Rick, I wanted to ask you this. You know, going, going, talking about, you know, 
some of the teams that you were on that your your favorite teams maybe the one or what, did you have a favorite team one of those Golden State Warrior teams the 76 77 well, team or 74 75 what was your favorite well uh, my, the team in 1966 67 was a, was a great basketball team and we came within two pick and roll plays of beating the 76ers the team picked as one of the greatest a lot of people pick them as the greatest team of all time with Will Chamberlain and Luke Jackson and Billy Cunningham and Hal Greer. Uh, they had Larry Costello, Matty Gukas. Uh, they had, I'm trying to think who else they had. Anyway, they had a lot of great players on that basketball team. And had those two pick and roll plays between Nate Thurman and myself uh, playing up against Will Chamberlain and gone our way instead of theirs. We could just as easily have won in six games. So that was a, a pretty spe- spectacular team. But as far as uh, a special group and accomplishing something to this day i still think it's the greatest upset in history at the nba finals and maybe one of the greatest upsets i think i think it is in, in the major sports in our country because i tell anyone i defy you go out and find me a team that was so poorly thought of at the start of the season in any sport that wasn't even picked by anyone to even be a playoff team right. to not only get to the playoffs win their conference then be a supreme underdog that was supposed to get swept in one of the biggest mismatches in the history of the sport, and you go out and sweep the team that was supposed to sweep you. That's which we did against the Washington against the uh, against the Washington Bullets. It's pretty incredible. Uh, speaking of huge upsets, do you think anyone is going to beat the Warriors this year, or are they going to roll to another NBA championship? Well, you don't roll anything because it all there's so many variables involved. I mean, health being one of them, uh, hopefully playing your best basketball at that time. Um, but if all things were to fall into place and they play the kind of basketball they're capable of playing, they certainly are the team to beat. Right now, they're defending champions, so they have to be at the top of the pecking order and they have to be the team that everyone's going to be aiming for and the team that you know you have to beat if you want to have a chance of winning a championship. It's certainly... They have a great opportunity to win multiple championships if they all stay together and stay healthy for the next three, four, five years. If you were picking a team to beat them, who would you pick? Uh, you know, certainly, you know, Cleveland certainly has a chance, I think, out of the East. I, I don't know if anybody else out there has a chance to beat them. Um, and, and, and the Spurs always have to be a team to be contending with without question. So, But I, I don't, I, I just don't know if there's anybody out there that overall, um, just has the firepower that they have offensively. I mean, they are so dynamic offensively and they're, they're impossible to guard basically. I mean, you know, people say, what do you do when you play against the Warriors? I said, well, you go to church and you light a candle and you play the (laughs) three top players are having bad games. I mean, seriously, I mean, look what happened in the one series when they went, they, they swept the series and Clay Thompson wasn't even a factor. Yeah. He just was struggling. And then he wasn't a factor and they swept. (laughs) <laughs> and then Clay came on, had some good games. I mean, if all three of those guys are on, and then you can throw Draymond Green into the equation because occasionally he gets really gets it going with his three-point shooting and what have you, and he can get you 20 points or more. You throw him into the equation. If all four of those guys are going, that's when you see some of the scores that you've seen. And it's mm-hmm. embarrassing. They humiliate you. They don't just beat you. They humiliate you. <laughs> if, if, if there, what, what is is in your mind, is there one guy of those four you just uh, named that is just the, the the glue for them for that club? Well, I think it, you know, obviously Steph is the guy because he's got the ball in his hands, so he's got to be the guy willing to give it up 
Right. You know, and some teams you go, I mean, Cleveland, it's one of the problems with Cleveland at times. Cleveland was like one-on-one for LeBron, right? Or one-on-one for Kyrie. I mean, there was hardly any team basketball being played at times. And you're just not going to win championships doing that. Whereas with the Warriors, the Warriors, it could be any one of four guys that can destroy you. Uh, seriously. And, and when they play there, that's see their own worst enemy. Occasionally they fall into the trap of coming down and jacking up a quick shot, not playing that brand of basketball, which works so incredibly well for them. But when they do that, you know, and especially if somebody's hot, I mean, you know, the Warriors can come down and sometimes do that. I remember vividly a, a huge shot for the Warriors when Kevin Durant dri- dribbled it up to court and came up to court and just pulled up and shot a three, you know, right in LeBron's face yeah. and made a huge three for them. I mean, that was not team basketball. That's just, Kevin Durant being hot and knocking down a jumper. So how do you defend that? You cannot defend that. Absolutely that's not. The thing. Here's the thing. They have three guys, three guys who can, or who are multiply, you know, multiply faceted. Okay. They can shoot the three exceptionally well. They can drive to the basket exceptionally well, and they can make their free throws exceptionally well. So what do you do against the, you know, what do you do? I mean, I always said, if, if you have, somebody has to play you honestly, you own them. Right. If you have a glaring weakness, then you got a problem. But those guys don't have a glaring weakness in their offense. So how do you defend them? You, how do you leave any, you can't leave any of those guys to go double somebody. Suppose Draymond's having a great time and he's got a guy that he can crush in the post. and set. You can't leave off of the other three guys to go and defend Draymond, can you? Because right. Draymond, you know, Draymond's going to kick it out. They get a wide open three. You're going to let any of those three guys have a wide open three? I don't think so. Yeah. So that's what makes them just so. I mean, it's it's got to be a nightmare for coaches to try to figure out a way that you want to defend these guys. I mean, you know, me, I I think you got to play up on them, and you got to make them. You have, you have to make them beat you, having to shoot something other than give them any wide open three looks. But even then, that's hard because if you're not up on them all the way, once they cross over half court. They can just pull up and shoot a jumper if they're going good and still make those shots from distance. I mean, come on, two seasons ago, I think it was a stat that blew me away. Steph Curry, and they keep these crazy stats now. They didn't do it when I played. <laughs> from twenty-eight, from twenty-eight feet and beyond, he shot forty-eight percent. Wow. Do you know how many guys would probably would want to go ahead and they'd pay somebody if they could find a way to get them to shoot forty-eight percent from normal range? Right. <laughs> yeah, that's really amazing. And, and I think one of the toughest things about covering them is that their entire lineup, when they go with Igudala instead of Zaza, their entire lineup is between 6'3 and 6'9. Uh, and they'll probably play the well, same way well, this year. Kevin, so, how do you guard trust them? Trust me. Tr- trust me. Uh, Kevin Durant is taller than I have a picture I can show you. He's taller <laughs> than 6'9. Yeah, I, I think, think so too. He's an anomaly. Yeah, no, he's way taller than six nine. But the problem with it is, you put a small guy in him, then and if he worked and you know getting low posted, he can pass out of it. But how do you defend that? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's it's virtually impossible to defend the Golden State Warriors. You have to pray that they're having bad shooting nights or taking bad shots and just not playing their brand of basketball. If they play their brand of basketball and they play their normal game, they are so incredibly difficult to defeat. I completely agree with you, and uh, the odds of them winning are, are really good. Uh, one of the themes of this episode, we're going with kind of what are the odds of a lot of things, and I wanted to get your take on one. What are the odds that the NBA ever completely embraces the underhand free throw? I don't think that'll ever happen. I don't know <laughs> what the 
you know, what the aversion is that people have uh, to not want to try it. Um, back when I would first did it, the girl shot that way. Well, girls don't shoot that way anymore. Okay. I mean, it doesn't matter if you could stand there with your eyes closed and throw it over your head with two hands and make a high percentage, then that's what you should do. It's all, it's about making a high, as high a percentage as you possibly can. So why in heaven's name, would you not be willing to try anything to get to be a better free throw shooter? If you're shooting 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, even 70% to try to get to 80. Because if you're not shooting 80%, you're not a good free throw shooter. It's that simple. Right. Seriously. I mean, they, 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 that's not 80%. That's missing one out of every five. It's the only area of the game that's constant. Same distance, same size ball, same size rim. No one trying to prevent you from doing what you're doing. Every time you step to that line and you can't make four out of every five, it's embarrassing. Right. How long did it take you to master that, Rick, that style? One summer. It took me one summer. My dad, you know, I was just trying to get him off my back. I didn't want to do it. And But when <laughs> I went out there and I gave it a sincere effort and practiced it, I said, oh, my God, this is pretty darn good. And, you know, so I, I really worked at it hard that summer, and I made the switch, and I shot over 80% for the first time and just kept getting better and better. In fact, you know, I still think I was the best free throw shooter ever because the stats show the entire career, right? Right. I made a revision to my shot. I, I made an adjustment and I refined the shot. And so I took the wrist out of it. My last six years, I shot over 92%, which is better than anybody's ever done. And my last two years, I shot over 94% from the free throw line. So, you know, that, and I took great pride in that. And I'll brag about it because it's the only part of the game. You can be selfish and help your team. Okay. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I want, I think about you and that shot at least once a week when I'm during the NBA season. Every time I watch DeAndre Jordan shoot a free throw or Dwight Howard, I always think, why don't they call up Rick Barry and learn how to shoot underhand? Yeah, well, they're not going to do that. Obviously, they don't have their egos. Or whatever. I don't know why, but, uh, but <laughs> I, I know DeAndre, I think, is working. My son, Scooter, uh, my oldest son, who played in the championship team at Kansas and played overseas until he was 40 years old, uh, has an incredibly sophisticated shooting sleeve called Solid Shot. It's the most uh, – It's it's – uh, sensors. It's amazing. I actually saw a video of him. He's actually changed DeAndre Jordan's shot. Hopefully he's going to continue to work with this and, and use it for next season. But he had him shooting over 70% from the free throw line, changing everything he did with this amazing tool. When you wear this sleeve and you, and you set the parameters within it, it gives you instant feedback and tells you exactly what you're doing wrong in every shot that you take. It's absolutely the most incredible teaching tool for, for, for shooting that has ever been around. There's nothing even remotely close to it. And I'm hopefully trying to get him to get some money to get something to get the production costs down so we can get it to like the $150 range. I mean, it's incredible. I'm, I'm hoping that he gets a chance to have Steph supposedly going to take a look at it. I told Steph, I said, Steph, you know, if you had this sleeve last year, remember when he went through that stretch when he wasn't shooting well? Yeah. I said, had you had this sleeve and it was programmed for your shot, all you would have had to do was put the sleeve on, go out, on the court and practice for and shoot for a little bit, the sleeve would have told you exactly what you were doing wrong in your normal shot and get you back on track again. And can you imagine if you had Steph Curry, a shooting sleeve that kids could have a program of his shooting form and kids could go out and shoot and actually realize when they're doing it correctly or not correctly, according to Steph's actual, you know, they call it like his IP. I mean, you know, this is what Steph does. This is how he shoots. Right. And you could go out and get a sleeve and practice and learn how to shoot like Steph Curry. I think things would fly off the shelves. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah. 
It's amazing. I tell you, I'm always curious, Rick, when you hear like that, you know, obviously what Scooter's involved with, some of the things that, that the, the new technology, like, can you imagine using that? Your, like, is there one that you would have, like, loved to have had that you didn't have back the, back in the day? Well, just just the, the, the sophistication of the training that's available to the players today. Right. I mean, there's <laughs> uh, there is no comparison. We did nothing. I never touched the weight as far as the team was concerned. And even then, I kind of was doing it on my own. We didn't have a, a strength coach. We didn't have an agility coach. We didn't have a dietitian. We didn't have anything. <laughs> These guys today have so much at their disposal. If I was playing today, that's like when people say, man, you guys couldn't play with these guys today. I said, are you out of your mind? <laughs> I said, not only could we play with these guys, every one of us would be way better. Right. We'd be faster, stronger, quicker, more endurance. We wouldn't have to kill our bodies by playing a game, going to sleep and falling to bed at two o'clock in the morning, getting up at five thirty to catch a seven o'clock commercial flight to go to the next city. We'd be on a chartered plane after the game with great meals, getting a good night's sleep. The difference between what these guys do and what we had back in our days is dramatic. And every one of us would be far better. I would love to have the opportunity to play today, not only because of all of that, but because they'd have three more zeros on my freaking contract. That's why. (laughs) That helps. Right. (laughs) So, Rick, I mean, you obviously love efficiency. And that's one of the reasons that we were so excited to bring you on our show. Our users love stats. And another thing I noticed that you're involved in that's all about efficiency is, is your Ectio shoes. Uh, can you tell us and the listeners well, why you know, that's... Here's the thing I'll tell you. I, I'd love to be able to tell you about it. But unfortunately, you know, none of these other big shoe companies wanted to actually do a deal to be able to provide safety for all of these people working a shoe that actually has proven to prevent help prevent ankle sprains yeah. and nobody wanted to take over the technology unbelievable and so that shoe wow. isn't even in existence anymore right. i saw it save my son from breaking his ankle in high school it's really tragic that that shoe is uh, is not out there in the marketplace very very sad That's i do shame. there's some people that are supposedly looking at it and possibly maybe bringing it back again. But I know that if I was playing without question, that's the shoe that I would be wearing because anything that could help me to prevent getting one of the ankle sprains I had in my career would have been worth it. Yeah. I was hoping you could tell us how the technology works to prevent the ankle injuries. Well, it's, I mean, it's patented technology and it, you know, had some special straps and things and constructed in a way that would help to prevent ankle sprains. I mean, it's it's proven that it could do that and, you know, it's not going to stop them. But in my son's case, he wound up with a sprain, but the doctor couldn't believe that he didn't break his ankle considering what had happened. He was kind of shocked, you know, and I told him about the shoe. He said, well, that's the only thing I can figure out that prevented him from actually breaking it. It's a miracle that he didn't break his ankle when he was in high school because he's a big leaper and he went up and came down awkwardly on someone's foot. And uh, this helped him not to go and have that injury be more severe than what it was. So yeah, anyway, it's, it's, it's sad that that's not around anymore. Hey, one thing to talk about you guys didn't bring up. I'm really, the one thing I'm looking forward to this season more than anything else is to see how Kyrie Irving works out in Boston. To be perfectly honest, I respect Kyrie as a player with you know tremendous talent and ability, but I really question his decision. Uh, I mean, how do you give up having a chance to play with one of the greatest players in the history of the game, the best three to ever play the game, have a chance to win perhaps another championship or more. If you get the right people around you, because you want to be the guy. What the hell is that? Right. I mean, I really, I really (laughs) truly question that a lot. 
I yeah. mean, that you're more concerned about wanting to be the guy on a team as opposed to being on a great team that can win championships. I, I, I just don't understand that. Uh, that's a, that's an excellent point. Hey, one uh, one more I wanted to ask you, just from a let's say you know from a general manager's uh, point of view, if you're looking at the one guy, you know whether it's a guy that distributes, who's the best guy to build your your club around outside of the dominant guy, the obvious name? Is there is there one guy that you'd say, man, I, that's the guy I want in my club to start my team? Well, normally it would be a great center who would be a dominating type of center, but you know they don't even have the center on the all-star ballot anymore, and teams play without any centers on the court at all a lot of times. I mean, for extended periods of time. Uh, it's like the, the center is becoming like a dinosaur, and you know, I don't understand it because there's nothing like having a big guy you can go to inside who can score, who can pass out of the post, and who can defend the, the, the hole for you and, and not give up a lot of easy uncontested shots close to the basket. So, you know, that's usually the case. I mean, you, you know, you would start with a, you know, with a Will Chamberlain or Bill Russell and Nate Thurman, those guys in the old days, uh, you know, a Shaquille O'Neal. I mean, but nowadays that's, that's doesn't seem to be the case. So I, to me, you want to have a guy who, you know, and this all of a sudden we came around as the scoring point guard, you know, what the, whatever happened to the point guard who's supposed to be the guy that gets everybody else involved. I mean, that's, that's a pretty important thing. I mean, there's nothing wrong with being able to score points. And the, the guy that I've loved for years, I've loved, I absolutely love Steve Nash because Steve Nash and say Magic Johnson the same way. Steve Nash yeah. could score 30 points, but he would rather get 20 assists. And he would only look to score when his team needed points. And that's, I think if there's anything, and I love John Stockton as well, but I think that was actually John's Achilles is that John was reluctant to score points at times when his team really needed him to score some points because he was so unselfish and was trying to get everybody else involved when he was capable of putting points on the board. And if anything, that, that would be the one chink in his armor as far as being you know such a great Hall of Fame type of basketball player to not score enough. That's why I love Steve Nash. And you know Magic, same way. Magic would rather get 20 assists than score 30, but he'd get 30 for you if he needed it. And such versatility, playing all the different positions. I mean, heck, I remember I broadcast a series against the Sixers when he played center when Kareem was out. Um, so, you know, an amazing player. But those are the kind of guys that I want to play with. As a player, you want to play with a guy who's going to get you the ball if you work hard to get open. You know, share the ball. Create opportunities for your teammates first and foremost. Score as a secondary aspect of your game. Without a doubt, I mean, I, I miss watching Steve Nash. I used to watch him a lot as a, growing up in L.A. He was always playing the Lakers, and he was probably my favorite player to watch. My dad used to always comment on, he's one of the last guys who's going to distribute the ball like this. And uh, it looks like he's certainly right. And what you're talking about, the scoring point guard is, is the fad right now. But maybe that'll change back. You, you, can you see the game reverting back to point guards like Steve Nash becoming the norm again? Um, yeah, well, there's not a lot of Steve Nash's around anyway over the right. years. I mean, I mean, you know, he's, he was an exceptional player. And the thing I respect about him and a guy like Steph Curry is that neither one of them came into the league, you know, highly touted to be this great new savior and can be this great player. And both of them turned themselves into all, I mean, to MVP players and they're going to be hall of fame players as well, because they just were never satisfied with their game. They kept working at their game and they're always striving to get better. And that's the thing that I respect most about a player a player who is always going to continue to work at his game and wants to win and is a team player. That's, that's the guys that I want to be with. That's the guys I want to play with. Those are the type of people you want on your team as a coach, as a general manager, as an owner, 
And I think that's the way the fans want to see the players. Well, Rick, we always appreciate the time. Thank you, as always. This has been terrific. Uh, you were a, a guy I, I loved watching you play back in uh, back in your heyday. You were one of my favorites. Uh, so thank you again for the time there. My pleasure. God bless you and your listeners. Thank you so much, Rick. Take care, guys. Bye. All right. Bye-bye, Rick. Thanks. Well, Jim, that was so much fun having Rick Barry on. I mean, he, he was passionate about everything he was talking about. It was a lot of fun. I, I loved the passion. He was still pretty opinionated, obviously, about about a number of topics out there. I thought, um, you know, I, I, I really w- took uh, a lot of interest in what he had to say about the team concept. Obviously, that that to me stood out, you know, along the way. Like, you know, even even when he would build, you know, like if he was going to build around one player, if he could find that John Stockton or Steve Nash, Magic Johnson type player, he would rather. Uh, do that which which i'm i'm always in favor of but but i think that you know just hearing his uh his um his view of it was pretty was pretty interesting you know and just the different changes along i guess he's he's of the feeling that uh that we won't see too many underhand uh, free throw shooters anymore yeah unfortunately unfortunately he doesn't believe in in that change and, and i think he's probably right i think he he hit it right on the head when he said that the egos are too big it's not that the idea itself right. isn't good but these guys just aren't willing to go out there and, and look a little silly just to, to shoot 80%, but I, I think they should be. And if I was the general manager of an NBA team, I guess all the players are glad that I'm not because I'd probably be out there in the summer telling them, you got to do this if you don't shoot 80%. I mean, he's right. It's minimum. That should be, you should be striving for 80%. There's no question about it. I mean, it, you know, and, you know, the fact that he, you know, said at the time, hey, I, he was what, 92, 93, 94%. That's remarkable when you yeah. compare it to, you know, today, I know what overall he's what you think he falls fourth on the free throw percentage. But can you imagine making a, a major change in the middle of your career and doing it the way he did and and still having that higher percentage? To me, that's pretty impressive. Yeah, it reminds me of Nate Brett at UNC. He switched uh, the hand that he was shooting his free throws with halfway through a season. He just switched from going to shooting at righty to lefty. And I think he might have even switched back at some point. Um, that's even more drastic. But but yeah, I agree with Rick that I think he is the best free throw shooter of all time, even though you're right, he is fourth uh, on the all-time percentage. But because he made that switch mid-career, I think you should consider it to be a, a totally different uh, percentage before and after, and therefore he would be number one, like he said. Yeah, I, it's, it's uh, you know, to me, it's one of those where, where you know, it's a fun, it's a fun debate, right? I mean, you, you, kinda, you, you put him in that, in that mix where he where he would fit against today. And I always love, you know, all right, Steve Nash was tremendous. I remember Mark Price, outstanding Steph Curry is really, really good. Those are the three that rank above, above Rick, uh, you know, on the all time uh, list there. But um, yeah, I think, I think that's the beauty. Like we get into those debates on the baseball side too. Who's the best ever. The one thing on free throws, I feel like you could, that's a little bit easier measurement. It's just a, it's just a shot. You know, you're stationary. There's no defense. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter height. Uh, you know, to me, it's you can measure that statistically, uh, just based off of, of success rate. You know, so right. that is the purest. You know, it's, it's the purest form of basketball stats. There's absolutely right. no external factors impacting that. I love it. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing that uh, that Rick didn't really touch on, and and I didn't want to. There was no real time to bring it up, but. He is the only player in history to lead the NCAA, ABA, and NBA in scoring. 
And he's also a part of the only team to be sanctioned from the playoffs, but have the leading scorer in the nation when he was at Miami in his senior year. Uh, so Rick Barry, I mean, he holds the records for all kinds of things. And I think the free throw record is what he's most proud of, but, but he's really, he had an amazing career. He, he really did. You know, I mean, his highest, I think the highest year uh, in terms of points per game was over 30 points per game back in 74, 75. But I, I mean, his, some of his teams are, are, you know, the, it, it brings me back to, to my youth when, you know, thinking of and talking about guys like Robert Parrish, who, you know, as he mentioned, you know, there's, you, the game is shied away from a little bit. The, the centers, he was one of the best uh, uh, centers in the game. Parrish was, that was the beginning of his career, but Jamal Wilkes and, and Gus Williams, players like that, that were really good on that, on that, uh, on his, I think it was his 76 and 77 team. Yeah. And it was, I thought it was interesting that, he so passionately brought up the Celtics, and he wanted to talk about Kyrie not really being the kind of player you want. And I couldn't agree more. I don't want a guy like Dwight Howard who says, I've had a successful career because I've made a lot of money. I mean, that might be true, but uh, in reality, as far as how society looks at you, but you haven't had a successful NBA career. You never want anything. And I think Kyrie is all about stats as well. It sounds like he's like, I want to get paid even more. I want my NBA 2K rating to be higher. I've heard him say that before. And I'm, I'm just thinking like, what are your priorities here? And and I, so I, I thought it was interesting that Rick brought that up. And I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, what in the world? And as a GM, because if you're the GM of the Celtics or any NBA team, do you want a guy who seems that concerned about personal stats and stuff like that instead of winning? Well, it's a tricky thing. If you're that, if you're a dominant player, then you can kind of get away with it. You need those players in the NBA. Obviously, to, you get two or three of those type players, and hopefully, they can work to, together. Um, you know that, that you have a chance to win a championship. You know, it's it's so different than in baseball, where you have one or two or three guys that are that are selfish. It, like it, it doesn't work that way in the sport. Like you still can't have success, but in the NBA, you you can. So. It's hard to discourage. It's hard to be uh, discouraging of, of acquiring a player like that, but you better really be built, um, you know, to support them and and to you know and to have the the surrounding cast. And you know, I'm not so sure uh, that that's the case in, in in the current home where Irving is. Yeah, yeah. I don't. I don't predict that the Celtics will win. I think they could, they're considered to have the third best odds in Vegas, um, but I'm not sure if if Vegas really believes that or if they just expect so many people to bet on them that they have to give them those odds. Because uh, right. I, I personally, I think the Spurs have a much better chance, even though their odds are far lower. Uh, I'll give, I'll take a team coached by Pop uh, with the talent the Spurs have rather than letting it all ride on Kyrie Irving, who just wants to be the guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. no, there's, I'm, I'm totally with you on that. And then again, you know, on the baseball side, it's, it's, just, it's just different. You know, those type of players... You know, you do get some some kind of selfishness, but a lot of times it ends up you end up policing it uh, yourself. You're, you're, as a best player, uh, you better have some kind of team aspect uh, to your game, or else it, you know it's difficult. It's difficult when you get 23, 24 guys that are teaming up on you. Yeah, yeah, it's it's tough. Uh, so one thing that we we talked about a little bit with Rick is we said what kind of what are the odds on on the NF the league the NBA switching to shooting free throws underhanded. He said pretty much zero. Uh, so right. th- it got me thinking, I wanted to touch on some other things that the odds are, are pretty much zero, but I want to see what you think uh, the best chances really are for these things. So I'm going to run through some stuff, and then I'll tell yeah. you what my 
uh, advanced statistical research has found, but, but why it's probably inaccurate anyway. The first thing is just absolutely insane. I don't know if you saw this, but Jose Ramirez had two outfield-assisted homers in one game. Uh, for the listeners, for the listeners who don't know what an outfield assisted home run is, it's when the ball would not go over the fence if not for the outfielder touching it and knocking it over the fence. He had two of those in one game. I'm sure it's the only time that has ever happened. Uh, and and to find the odds of that are almost incalculable. Do you think we'll ever see that again, Jim? I don't think you'll ever see it too. You might. You, you definitely see. I think you see it once. Uh, you know, one one time, but two in one game. Uh, I you know the percentages have to be uh, just uh, an unbelievable amount of, uh, to chance and to luck. A lot of this is luck, too. Oh, totally. I mean, it, it requires you to hit the ball to the exact location where it's close enough to the wall but not over it, and it requires the outfielder to make a huge blunder. And so for that to happen twice, when these guys are professional outfielders rarely making mistakes, uh, that I, just, I don't think it'll ever happen again, certainly not in, in my lifetime. Yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't think we'll see it. I really don't. I would be, I would be very surprised. Another thing that people are always saying, "Will we see this? Will we not?" is five home runs in one game. Uh, I want to get your thoughts on that. Do you think we'll ever see that happen? You know, it's funny. Th- that's the one that uh, when I look at some of these things that happen, you know, guys have gotten four. You know, obviously J.D. Martinez recently, uh, Mike Cameron, who was a former player of mine, he did it, but not with me with the Mets. But he did it, I believe, in Milwaukee. Josh Hamilton, I saw that recently when he was with Texas. Um, it's it's so rare for for oh, Scooter Jeanette did it uh, this yeah, past year with the Reds. That was really like, shocking. That was more more than <laughs> anything, right? Because this guy, you know, he's had a good year this year. But other than that, he's been more of a utility type guy. So, you know, I look at that and I go, you know, Mike Cameron said to me the other day when I talked to him, his. His final at bat it came close to the, you know the warning track for a fifth home run, and I feel like if if the game goes extra innings, there's se- certainly uh, you know a chance of that happening. It's a small small possibility, but I, I think we could see a day uh, that we get a five homer game. Yeah, I think that I think the day is coming. Uh, maybe not anytime soon, um, but I did do some digging on this, and in the 2015 season. The way I just looked into Bryce Harper particularly, he hit 42 home runs over 153 games, uh, and he had five plate appearances or more in 32% of the games. So if you factor out all the numbers, Harper has about a 1 in 2.6 million chance to hit five home runs in any randomly selected game. So if you're going to say, all right, well, there's been 214,416 MLB games played in history with stats recorded. There have been 16 games with four home runs. So I think with more than a dozen players in any game capable of hitting five home runs, not likely, but capable, Scooter Jeanette has proven that almost anyone can hit four homers. Uh, it's possible. Right. At every MLB player with any power at all, it, they, they fall under the category of capable. Um, so I think the odds are this feat should have already occurred one time, especially with uh, 16 guys hitting four. Uh, right. I, I would think... That at some point it's coming, uh, Jim. What do you think is more likely? Uh, there is an answer. I'm just wondering what you would pick: four yeah. home runs or 20 strikeouts in one game. Ooh, baby. Well, I mean, I, I know, I know from 20 strikeouts there aren't many. Uh, you know, I know Roger Clemens, Mike, Max Scherzer. I think there's like four or five of those. Um, 
versus the four homer game. So the likelihood is four homer game, um, but the way the way the game is changing, um, I wouldn't be surprised if we see a few more twenty strikeout games here in the near future. Yeah, I think going forward, the odds are a lot closer than they appear. Uh, the the real the raw numbers are sixteen players have hit four homers and four pitchers have had twenty strikeouts. I don't think there's a four to one chance going forward. I, I like you said, the game has changed to be so much more strikeout oriented uh, that I think you'll start seeing guys strike out twenty more often. I won't be surprised if Scherzer does again before he retires. Yeah, yeah, he's definitely one of those guys, Kluber has it in him, you know, uh, Kershaw probably has it in him. I mean, there's a couple guys like that for sure. Strasburg, you know, if he could stay healthy, he could be a guy like there's a, you go, you know, Noah Syndergaard with the Mets. Like if he was healthy, you get like, you go to five or six guys pretty quickly. Yeah. And then another interesting thing that a lot of people say we'll never see is a 57 game hit streak. And so the math on it suggests that we should easily see one actually a, a 350 hitter with four at bats in a game would have a 1 in 4,400 chance to get 57 hits in a row, uh, or in consecutive games, 57 hits. And the reason that I don't think it'll ever happen, though, is because plate appearances are different from at-bats. And so when people do this math, they're calculating at-bats. But keep in mind, Bryce Harper had 11 consecutive plate appearances this year with zero official at-bats. If just one of those became an at-bat, he'd lose a hit streak. And for listeners who don't understand the difference, uh, I didn't when I was growing up. I always wondered what that was about. A walk or a hit-by-pitch or a sack fly, uh, I think there's probably a few others, they don't count as official at-bats. They just count as a plate appearance. So you'll Bryce Harper in those games went 0-for-0 with five walks and a hit-by-pitch in one of those games. So if he puts the ball in play just once, he'll lose his hit streak. And... And I also think you you can only run those numbers like a 350 hitter as far as against the average pitcher. But what happens when Wade Davis comes in with his 178 batting average allowed, and now that's the at bat that you get? Uh, right. So that's why I don't think it'll happen. Do you think it'll happen, Jim? I I, I think this is one of those streaks that's going to be almost impossible to break. I, I really do. I think the more attention you you face, far less pitchers uh, now than you did. I mean, far more pitchers rather. Than you did back in the day. I mean, you, it's not unusual to face four different pitchers in a game nowadays and trying to learn, you know, each one of them and their stuff and, and, you know, each guy throwing harder than the other and different breaking, but like it just becomes exponentially more difficult to face different pitchers, you know, during the course of the game. I think, you know, I don't know, I don't remember how many different pitchers over that 56 game uh, hit streak that Joe DiMaggio faced, but I'll bet you exponentially he's, it, it would be five times or more pitchers that you would face today trying to break it. It's that it's that significant how much uh, how much the specialization in the sport has changed. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think and there's pitchers now that are just so dominant um, that if you come in against Corey Kluber and he goes nine innings, good luck keeping your hitting streak alive. Uh, right. it, at least if you have to do that multiple times over the course of 57 games, I just at some point I think you're going to get broken. Yeah. Yeah, no, I'm, I agree with you on that. Well, this has been a really fun episode. Uh, I hope the listeners enjoyed it. I certainly did. I loved having Rick on. I always love talking stats, so uh, I had a really good time. I hope you did too, Jim. Enjoyed it, and uh, look forward to the next one.